Good morning again. Uh, we are in a series that is talking about uh, words that are commonly used in a church that sometimes we throw around and use with such common usage that we actually forget the meaning of it, or especially if you're new to Christianity or especially new into a church context, um, they're words that you hear thrown around all the time, but you may not exactly know what they mean. So that's what we're doing in this particular series, and we happen to be on a word this morning that um, I have never specifically in over 20 years of preaching had a sermon just on this topic. Now, we've talked about the topic before, but we've never focused on the topic as a biblical topic. And it has me a little bit concerned for two reasons. One, if you are new to Calvary, um, this is part of God's word. It is part of the truth of Scripture. And I can't apologize for it, and I can't hide from it, because it is part of the gospel message, even though you may sit there and say, aha, I knew churches were all about this. And no, we're not talking about tithes. We're not talking about money. Um, but you can almost sit there in a judgmental type of frame of mind and say, I knew churches were all about this. See, and I knew even trying this one out, I'd get this kind of topic. I can't apologize for it. It is scripture, and we are going to see that it has a right place in scripture, and we have a way of responding to it. So we're not going to be left just with the heaviness of this word. Um, I said there were two things. Uh, oh, yes, the second thing, super important. Um, it was really hard to kind of focus only on this topic this morning because next week's topic, they go hand in hand. And I know that you're not going to afford me uh, uh, an hour of your time on a Sunday morning, but a half hour is usually what people can uh, accomplish and give on any particular morning, which is fine. But I would hope that even if this morning you're looking at this topic and you hear it and you see it and we look through scripture, that don't give me the benefit of the doubt, but actually come back next week to hear the second part to the message. Don't just leave it with this this morning and go, that's what Calvary is all about. That's what Christianity is all about. I knew it. I'm, I'm given up on it because it's all about hell. And that's what we're going to look at this morning the topic and subject specifically on hell. And for many people today, obviously the concept of hell is outdated and uncomfortable. And even to many modern churches and many modern church movements, it's a relic of the past and it served its purpose and it can safely be done away with. We don't need it anymore. Because, Tim, that is not how you encourage people talking about hell. That is definitely not how you evangelize. You don't talk about hell. And that's certainly not how to bring people back the next Sunday if all you're going to do is talk about hell. you got to talk about the big one, love. And, yes, we do talk about love. And next week, it's all about love, love's application. But today, we are going to talk about a tremendously, unbelievably, Sad, gut-wrenching truth about hell. And before you quickly pass judgment, or before you even tune out, 
I think it's healthy to be reminded that the person who talked about hell the most in Scripture, the person who talked more about hell than heaven, is Jesus Christ. Now let that sink in for a moment. As you survey the New Testament, as you look through what he said and all the rest of the New Testament authors, you are going to find that he references hell, judgment, and punishment more often then he references heaven and glory. And no other author in the New Testament speaks more about judgment than Jesus Christ. Now, you know that I believe if it's mentioned once in Scripture, that's sufficient for it to be an authority. It doesn't have to be listed five times for us to wake up and go, oh, we should pay attention to it because it's listed five times now. If it's listed once, we've, we believe. But imagine... For a moment, Jesus talking more about hell than heaven, it should, it should invoke in us a sense of, wow, if it was that important to him, maybe we should investigate it for 30 minutes one Sunday out of our entire experience together. Maybe we should give it its due place. Now we've talked about it as we've looked through other scripture, as it's been brought up, but this morning, like I said, we are going to focus on it specifically. Now when we talk about hell, I want to um, help us understand from a biblical perspective the word hell, what it means. And there are actually four words in scripture that's translated from the Hebrew and the Greek that we translate the word hell and it's not always consistent, sometimes it's context, but the very first word that we often uh, um, translate hell is the word sheol, and that's a Hebrew word, and the word actually just simply means the grave. The Hebrews did not have, in the Old Testament, a specific concept of heaven and hell as we have developed in the New Testament. They understood there was death, there was punishment, there was something called Abraham's bosom, which was a safe place for God's people. But until Jesus Christ came and accomplished redemption, they sort of were in this category of waiting for redemption to follow through in its completeness. Um, and so the word that, uh, in the Old Testament, that's used 99.999% of the time, also is translated just death, grave, darkness, the end of life, but it's also translated hell. It's the word sheol. Then there's three words in Greek that are translated the word hell. The first is Hades, which I'm sure you've heard of before. The second word is Gehenna. Um, and the third word is Tartars. And that's only used one time in all of Scripture, but I needed to put it in there because that is a Greek-translated word for hell. And so I think the two most common that we're uh, familiar with is definitely the word Hades, and the word Gehenna. Now, Gehenna has a really special meaning, and it's the word that Jesus used most often. And Gehenna is actually a physical location south of Israel that is there to this day. And it's also called the Heman Valley. And this valley was um, a reference point for spiritual conflict and tragedy in the lives of the Israelites in the Old Testament. Uh, Especially in the book of First uh, and Second Kings, it's referenced quite a bit. And it happened to be the place in the Old Testament where the Israelites would go and they would sacrifice their children. 
I said that rightly. It was a place where Israel, God's people, would go right outside of Jerusalem and sacrifice their children. Not the lambs and bulls and goats, their children. And in time, that place, Gehenna, or the valley south of Israel, started to even have a bad taste in the experiences of the Israelites, and they decided to use it as a garbage dump. So all of the city's garbage, however that was collected back then, for hundreds and almost a thousand years was all thrown into this one valley, sort of as a, it was a garbage dump. And you never went there, you never hung out there, you never lived there. It was a place filled with just trash. Even the remains of human bodies that had died, could not afford a burial, they would be thrown into the valley. And this valley had two distinctive characteristics. One, if the wind blew from the south to the north into the city, it was a bad day because it stunk. Rotting flesh, burning flesh, burning trash, human excrements. I mean, it was, it was horrific smell. Um, uh, you know what it's like when you are driving in a car and you pass an animal and you realize exactly what that animal was that was hit on the side of the road, right? If it's a skunk, you can pick it out. And it just lingers in the car. How, how does it even get in? But it does, and that smell is wretched, and you cannot wait for the car to kind of get aired out from that skunk. Well, that's how it was in the city of Jerusalem if the air, if the wind blew from the south to the north, because it would take that trash right into the city. So the first characteristic is that it stunk. The second characteristic is that there was always an ongoing smoldering fire in that valley. Because as people threw trash in, they lit it on fire to get rid of it, to burn it up, and there just sort of was always a smoldering fire of ashes and actual flames and smoke and stench that would arise from it all the time. That is the word that Jesus uses more often to convey what hell is like. Now, in Scripture, Jesus says multiple times what hell is like, but I just have a list of a few things, what hell is like. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, it says that it is full of darkness and screaming. Not just darkness, not just screaming, but darkness and screaming. Darkness and screaming, a place filled with it, which means your eye cannot find rest. You cannot find light. You can't distinguish one form over the other. It's just darkness and screaming. Secondly, in Luke 16, 23, hell is a place of eternal torment. Not just a place where it's going to hurt, but a place where it will hurt forever. Jesus never had the concept that hell was temporary that you would only last a little while and then you'd cease. Hell to Jesus was eternal, just as eternal as heaven is. And I know that that is sometimes hard to wrestle with. How do we wrestle with heaven being eternity, full of joy and happiness and peace and comfort, 
And yet there's also a hell filled with eternal torment. In Mark chapter 9, verse 43, it says it's an unquenchable fire. Just like Gehenna's fire and stench would never end, so hell's fire will never end. It will eternally be filled with that touch of pain, that burn, that sensation of hurt. In Mark 9, 48, he says it's a place where the worms will not die. Now, this only becomes um, relatable when you have witnessed, I think, firsthand what rotting flesh may look like and smell like. And I'm not talking about human. I'm just talking about a decaying body in the forest. Not body, a decaying animal in the forest. I came across a bird one time, and I only recognize that as a bird because of the bill, the, the beak. And uh, it was every grotesque horror movie's dream come true, worms crawling all out of its skull and body parts and little pieces, maggots. It is a place where that doesn't end, where cycle upon cycle upon cycle there is death and decay and just horror. And then you think it's going to end. And it starts up again. It never stops. It is relentless. Decay, stench, sorrow, pain, darkness, fire, screaming. He says in Mark chapter 13, verse 42, that it is a place filled with torments and anguish, regret, and gnashing of teeth. It is so disgusting that every fiber of your body hates it and feels it and is under its curse. And he says in Luke chapter 16, 19 through 31, the story of that, there will be no return from it. And I think that might be perhaps the most devastating part of hell and the most blessedness of heaven is that in hell, there's no hope of change. In heaven, there's no hope of change. It's just glorious. But in hell, there is also no hope of change. And it's much, it's not like anything we've experienced. Nothing like we've experienced. I don't care if it's cancer that you've experienced. I don't care if it's the loss of a loved one that you've experienced. I don't care if it's um, really bad relationships that you've experienced. I don't care if you've experienced a murder in your family. It is nothing like the hopelessness of hell. Because there is always in this life hope that the next day will be a little bit better, that the next day there'll be a little less pain, that the next day maybe there'll be a little bit of joy, that the next day maybe the tears won't come every hour, but every other hour. Maybe, maybe, maybe it'll get better. Maybe I'll get healed. Maybe the pain will stop. You see, we experience in this life, when we have tragedy and hurt, we have hope. And especially in Christ, we have hope. But in hell, there's no hope. I, we, we don't know what that feels like. We don't, we've never experienced hopelessness. We've experienced days where we thought we're all alone and all is lost, but not true. 
God is always there. But in hell, God removes his comfortable presence. And there is no gospel. There is no preaching of repentance. There is no turning around and changing your mind. There is no next day where it might get better. I think that leads us to a section of Scripture that I, uh, I wish I had time just to take over this entire part, and maybe we'll do that next week. But in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is in the midst of telling some parables, and he tells us this story in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, all the way through verse 46, that talks about the sheep and the goats. And in short, Jesus talks about uh, what the final day of what this world will look like when everyone who has lived as a child of God and everyone who has lived for themselves, it is revealed. And there's only two groups. The two groups are separated from those who love God and those who don't acknowledge God. They may know about God, they may memorize scripture, but they don't have any heart relationship with God. And those people, Jesus described as goats. The others, those that know God, that have a relationship with him, are called the sheep. And the sheep enter into everlasting rest, and the goats enter into the torment of hell with no hope attached to what will happen next. And it is a beautiful illustration of how Jesus views love for himself and how he views those who have no love or interest in others. And he says a very interesting verse, and that's verse 41, because it really describes for us why there is a hell. I think that's a very important question to answer. Why is there even a hell? And Jesus tells us why there's a hell in verse 41 of Matthew chapter 25. He says, Then he will say to those to his left, those are the goats, those that do not have a relationship with God, even though they may have spiritual things in their life or religious activity, religious activity and spiritual things do not equal a relationship with God. Those are not the same thing. And so there's a lot of people that go through life fooling themselves that their religious activity gets them merit and credit and favor with God, and that's not how God works. God says, I want your whole heart, your whole soul, everything of you. I want your wholeness. Not just a couple bucks in an offering plate or letting someone walk in the door before you or giving someone a parking spot. No, 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 no. I want your life, the whole of it, not just parts of it. And so Jesus says, he says to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire. And here's the key, prepared for the devil and his angels. You see, hell was not originally designed for, hot, for us, for humans. It was designed for these incredibly spiritually powerful beings. The devil and everyone that followed him, all the demons. It was designed for maximum terror in a spiritual and emotional sense. And we're not strong enough to bear that. We will crumble and break the second we breathe our last breath and we're told, depart from me. 
There will nothing be more fearful in your life. There will nothing, nothing will be scarier than that moment of knowing you are going to a place designed to punish almost eternal beings of great power and you're thrown in with them. You have to bear what they bear. You have to endure the pain and suffering that was designed for beings that are so much different than us. And that's why I think I can say we've never experienced even a sliver of what hell is like. Even on your worst day, whatever that worst day might be, the most painful worst day in your imagination is nothing compared to a second in hell. It isn't. It is so over-the-top hard. It is beyond our ability to bear. All without hope. No hope. No second chance. No respite. No break. No moment of closing your eyes and falling asleep and ignoring it for eight hours. That will not happen. It won't. There's no taking a nap from it, no pill, no drink, no drug, nothing, no entertainment. Nothing will flash through your mind except the pain and torment of your decision to reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That will haunt you forever. That you heard the gospel, but you rejected it. But I might ask the question in that process, hell is real. Hell is designed for beings that are far more powerful from me. It's, like, 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 it's almost like putting you on the other side of the moon by yourself. It's, it's hopeless. You can't get back. But why in the world would Jesus, would God, send people there? Why would he send them there? We know it's designed for, for the devil and his followers, his angels, his people that, that followed him in the rebellion against God spiritually. Why are people even sent there? Well, in 2 Thessalonians, Paul answers that question. He says in 2 Thessalonians, starting in the first chapter, starting in verse 9, he tells us why. Why people will experience hell. He says, this is Paul, this is evident of the righteous judgment of God. So he's talking about the judgment of God. And that judgment of God is the separation of the sheep to the goats. Okay, what Jesus was talking about basically in Matthew chapter 25. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God. And he's speaking to you as believers in a local church. He says that you may consider worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also are suffering. So he's telling us about God's judgment so that we would understand the incredible value of being saved from that judgment. Even though we're suffering, even though we have pains and sorrows, and even though we may be ridiculed and judged by the world as fanatics or radicals or old-fashioned, says... I want you to know about this because you're going to be encouraged in the end. 
says, since indeed God considers it just to replay with afflictions those who afflict you, so it's a just, our God is just, people will get repaid for what they've done. And he's specifically talking about martyrdom and the ridicule of Christianity and the followers of God. Those that afflict God's household, they will be afflicted. We don't have to worry about payback or justice. God is a God of justice. He will set things right. You don't have to set them right. It's not an eye for an eye scenario. God will take care of it. He says, since indeed God considers it just to repay with afflictions those who afflict you, since indeed God, oh, and to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us, then the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So Jesus will come one day, and we see examples of this in great language in the book of Revelation, that Jesus is coming not as a mild little baby in a manger who is soft and innocent and sweet and just cooing and just cuddling in his mother's arms, but he is coming as a king who is filled with vengeance, that he will exact vengeance upon his enemies, that he does not come with a peace, but he comes with a sword. And that sword is described as flaming. And it will exact perfect judgment and vengeance upon those who, as Jesus says, or as Paul says, who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and who do not know God. All of those who have no relationship with God as Father and in that relationship as a child of God, every one of them will be judged because they do not know him. They do not love him. They have not heeded the gospel. They have not believed his word. They have rejected it, ridiculed it, ignored it, or just simply passed it off as just one of many religions. And I hope I picked the right one, but they picked the wrong one. Everyone in that scenario and situation, Jesus does not come as a savior, but Jesus will come as a conquering, vengeful King of kings and Lord of lords. And do not, Christian, apologize for that. Do not shrink away from the whole nature of Jesus Christ. He is much Savior as he is King of kings. He offers as much peace as he exacts judgment. Don't soften that. Don't reject it. Don't put it to the wayside and say, oh, that's one of the embarrassing things of Christianity that Jesus will come and judge. No, that's a triumphant thing because in that judgment, you will be seen as holy and pure, not of your own works, but of his works on your behalf. And that brings you into the fullness of his kingdom, the fullness of heaven, the fullness of enjoying his presence forever and ever, ever. The enjoyment of absolute hope experienced. Experienced hope. He continues in that verse 9 of that, of that chapter and says, those that do not know God, have no relationship with God, and those who have rejected the gospel, they will suffer, verse 9, the punishment of eternal destruction 
away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. I, I don't know if this should scare you. I don't know if it should make you question your own salvation. Have I done all the right things for God to consider me a sheep and not a goat? I don't know what the reaction is that God wants you to have to this message. Maybe it'll make you serious about your spiritual life. I don't know. Maybe it'll make you confident in, in sharing the gospel. Maybe it'll make you go back to the Lord and say, Lord, we need to get right. My sin is just, it's confusing me. I, I don't know if a child of God should live like this. Help me. I'm not quite sure what the reaction should be for you with this message of hell. But I do want to leave us off on a more encouraging note than just a description of hell and why it's there and how you get there. And, um, uh, you know, there, there's, I saw a bumper sticker years and years and years ago that said, I would rather rule in hell than serve in heaven. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Or saying, I'd rather rule in hell than serve in heaven. And that's that person's way of saying, I don't want to have to bow to Jesus. I want to be my own. Uh, hate to break it to you. But with every description of hell from Scripture, there's no sharing of power of rule. Um, Satan is not the king of hell. He isn't. He is its most notorious prisoner that will be tormented far greater than your torment. And when you think about what your torment will feel like in hell, his is compounded thousand times more. He doesn't rule. He's not in charge of a party down there. And his followers are not engaged in a party atmosphere. It is terror. Absolute filled terror. But not so for those who know and believe in the most famous of all Scripture verses from the book of John. John 3, verse 16. So in John 3, verse 16, Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You can put your fears and your scared reaction or your negative reaction to hell aside, and you never have to experience it. Because today, Jesus says, is the day of salvation. Today is the day you listen to that message of the gospel, that your sin has separated you from God and the only way back to a relationship with God is through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. 
And when you submit and acknowledge and bow all of your pride, all of your self-righteousness, all of your good works before the cross and say, I have nothing in my hand to bring. I rely 100% on you, Jesus, to comfort me in this life and the next, to save me from my own wicked heart and my own wicked ways, plant me, adopt me into your family. And every single time when he hears that prayer from your heart, no matter who it is, no matter where they are or when they lived, his answer is always the same. Yes, I will save you. I'll have the band come up, the elders come up, and we're going to pray and have communion. And I'd ask that everyone sort of on the sides just come to the front aisle, walk down when that's time, and then uh, just take the elements, go back to your seat. Real quick question, or not question, uh, about the elements. I know that we've kind of, because of COVID, kind of gone to these uh, unique one kind of things. Uh, we are looking for better uh, tasting options. Uh, so uh, we're just kind of suffering together through what this company calls uh, grape juice and sawdust. But we are looking for much better alternatives. Uh, but we actually have to use this up first. So let's pray. Father, thank you very much for putting joy into our hearts. But Father, also thank you for putting a sense of reality in front of us. Lord, we don't want to experience hell and we don't want anyone that we know and love to experience it. So Father, work in our lives that we might be truly serious about what you say about heaven and hell. And Father, if there was ever a time your people need comfort from the sorrows and pains of this life, it's now. We see its pressure all around us. We see fear everywhere. Lord, you are not a God of fear, but you are a God of love. So fill our hearts, our lives, and our experiences this week with love. And may this sacrifice of your Son and our celebration of it remind us that you are indeed good to us and you give us hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.